This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Like you, we are being inundated with information every hour about what is going on in Ukraine. And the challenge, just to understand basic terms what is happening, is immense because of the amount of propaganda and PR from either side of the conflict. That's what we're going to try to do in the coming days and weeks. We're going to gather voices and experts who can try to help us navigate between those poles of information and find out what is really happening. Joining us today is an analyst for the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies. He is an expert in contemporary Russian and Ukrainian history, politics and regime transition. His name is Andreas Umland. Uh, hi, Andreas. Hello. Thanks for having me. So you are a political scientist in contemporary Russian and Ukrainian history, specializing in regime transition. So it seems like uh, you're exactly the right person to be talking to. You've been living in Kiev for 20 years and are currently in Berlin. In the past few days, there's been a couple of things that have surprised people. The first is that the expectation was the huge might of the Russian military machine would simply swoop in and there would be some kind of shock and awe victory. And it just took a day or two to understand that that wasn't really happening. How confident are you or should we be in that? Because some people are saying this is all coming from Ukrainian sources. You know, we are essentially kind of repeating the propaganda from the Ukrainian side. Should we be skeptical about those claims of kind of bad outcomes for the Russian side? Is, is it possible that this is all part of a two-week plan and that it's actually going okay for the Russians? What do you make of that? I think in a way, both versions are true in the sense that uh, the... Uh, Russian military might has not been fully used so far. And uh, that may be also a reason why um, the attack so far has apparently not gone uh, according to plan. And that may um, be connected to the um, Russian uh, vision of Ukraine as a weak state and as uh, um, a country where you actually don't need the full uh, military uh, potential that Russia has. And there is now there is the expectation and fear 
that um, we may actually get a much larger um, escalation once Russia now realizes that this sort of small scale invasion is not enough to take Kiev and change uh, uh, the government in Kiev and that we may now see a real large escalation of the war, uh, which would be frightening. So actually, what appears on the surface to be good news, which is the kind of Russian attempt is, is not going especially well, may not turn out to be good news in a few days' time if, if it's just a pretext for escalation. Yes, uh, especially the air power, uh, the missile, uh, the missiles, the artillery has been only used to limited extent so far. There have been already some um, uh, vicious attacks on uh, civilian uh, buildings, civilian areas in Kharkiv, for instance. Uh, even the city center has been uh, hit. Uh, but um, now that Russia uh, or that the Kremlin realizes that uh, it will not be uh, easy actually to to fight um, Ukraine, it may use these these ammunition to much larger extent, and then we would uh, we may get tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of victims. So, what is your best analysis of why Russia has been more cautious, let's say, in the early stages? about using that kind of heavy military? Is it because they just thought it would be easier and they didn't need to? Or do you think there is actually a sentiment within the Russian side that given that the whole argument is it's part of Russia, that's their whole pretext for this campaign, to kind of actually shell residential areas and cause huge amounts of civilian casualties would go against the purpose of their own campaign? Do you think they actually are trying to minimize civilian casualties? Yes, certainly they're trying to minimize civilian casualties because uh, their aim is obviously to make Ukraine uh, part of the Russian sphere of influence, maybe not to actually fully annex it as Crimea, but to have it uh, in uh, its sort of orbit in one way or another. So it would be sort of counter Russian interests to to damage Ukraine to to a large uh, degree. Um, the reason that also I think we've we've seen this uh, hesitant uh, attack on Ukraine is that also the Russian leadership may have been not only misinformed by its own propaganda and may have started to believe its own propaganda, but that there are also uh, there have been also uh, plenty of Western analysts who have been talking about the Ukrainian state um, as a joke, basically uh, led by a comedian. Um, you know, corrupt, uh, sort of as a as a bizarre, in fact, uh, phenomenon where you just need to uh, push a little bit, and then it would all crumble. Um, you know, I know personally some of these analysts who have been spreading this sort of narrative about Ukraine, and of course, Ukraine is uh, uh, or has been corrupt, and indeed, the uh, Ukrainian president uh, was a comedian, but. Uh, it now turns out that the Ukrainian state and the military and the society are much stronger. And if you if you knew Ukraine deeply and if you had studied, for instance, what has happened during the, during the Orange Revolution, during the Euromaidan Revolution of 2013, 2014, and during the last eight years, you would know that the Ukrainians can get their act together if necessary. Uh, they may be not particularly strate- strategic in their international behavior, but in in situations of um, of danger, 
they are actually quite good in improvising. Let's dig in, if we could, to a couple of details that we've seen in the last 24 hours. So I think we have a, a map we can put on the screen of what appear to be the Russian areas of control within Ukraine. Uh, and they're kind of seeping in from all the sort of eastern front and the southern side, um, gradually encroaching on the country. It looks like they're about to connect the um, Crimean section with the, the mainland section that um, joins Russia. And then obviously they're coming down and gradually getting closer and closer to Kiev from the north. So while the narrative in the Western media is how poorly Russia is performing and how slowly and badly it's going for Putin, the map looks quite ominous for Ukraine because gradually they're being hemmed in. Indeed, it, it looks uh, frightening, uh, but one could still argue that, you know, what we are now observing is not something peculiar. If you look at the map of Georgia, it may still be the case that Russia is already uh, is still occupying more state territory of the Georgian state than um, of the Ukrainian state. That is the sort of sad uh, uh, sort of background story of all of that, we, that we have seen this already on a smaller scale in Georgia without any sanctions, any serious sanctions, which in, uh, with, with an improvement after this uh, Russian attack on Georgia um, uh, in 2008, with an improvement of uh, Russian-Western relations after this attack in August 2008. And so we see here just the replay of what has happened already to Georgia in 2008 and arguably uh, to Moldova in uh, in the early 1990s. So this is, in a way, not, nothing new, this, this map that we are now, now seeing. What I think here should be for um, European observers, also for Turkish observers, also for Russian observers, be the most interesting part in this map is the southern um, part and and the uh, and the little line there that says Saporizia uh, and that's because in the region of Saporizia the largest uh, european nuclear power plant with six active reactors is located and we have now combat in the immediate vicinity of the largest european nuclear power plant and i think that should change a little bit the uh, perception of this conflict in in Europe because the stakes here are much higher than uh, many people imagine. Uh, we are here in a, uh, in a risk zone that uh, goes far beyond uh, Ukraine. One question I've had um, is how much we should put faith in estimates of casualties and losses because the Ukrainian government has been very active in putting out daily updates on their estimates. And I believe we're currently looking at 5,000 odd Russian casualties according to the Ukrainian government. And I'm not sure whether they are all dead or dead or captured, but it's a huge number. Uh, and, you know, it's more people than died in 9-11. It's more people than the United States lost in the Iraq conflict. I mean, this is a big, big number. How much credibility would you give that? There is uh, now a website, a special website uh, created by the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense where they're actually posting um, pictures of dead bodies and also of captured uh, uh, Russian prisoners of war with their names. Uh, this is actually made for the uh, for the relatives of these uh, soldiers in in Russia. Um, in uh, although in Russia it's difficult to access actually this website. Uh, 
that has been blocked by the Russian government. Uh, but um, there is a documentation, uh, even a already considerable public documentation of uh, of this number. Whether it's co it's correct, um, uh, maybe it's higher, maybe it's lower. Um, it feels it say. feels fair to say, even if it's inaccurate by a hundred percent, maybe it's half as many. It's still an astonishingly large number for day five of this campaign. There, there were stories that the Russian military is carrying with it incinerators so that they are actually disposing of deceased bodies so that they don't need to have the difficulty of bringing them home and having a ceremony when they land in Moscow. I mean, that's really a very grim thought, isn't it? And I just wonder, what is the politics of that likely to be within Russia? I mean, that's four or 5,000 grieving families Will they have any kind of impact, do you think, on the perception of Vladimir Putin, of the whole project within Russia? One would think so, although uh, the uh, the portrayal in the uh, Russian official public sphere of this whole conflict is, of course, very different from what we see. You know, it's a denazification campaign, a demilitarization campaign. Um, no numbers yet, or, or very low numbers only, have been published by the Russian Ministry of Defense. So um, uh, the the Russian state has become very professional in sort of in shaping this uh, public discourse. In general, I think over the last uh, 20 years, the main thing that has actually uh, happened um, uh, geopolitically and the most frightening thing is uh, uh, the um, indoctrination of the Russian uh, manipulation. So we've we've talked a, a lot about fake news in the West and and sort of this sort of hybrid war methods, but uh, the real frightening thing is how much the Russian population has been indoctrinated and is now believing these sort of uh, stories about um, a threatening Nazi Ukraine that might attack Russia with nuclear weapons and and stuff like that. So. Um, in this context, then uh, the, the whole war is discussed, and of course, um, not much real information is uh, is, is presented. I mean, we should you... say, shouldn't we, um, that there are Nazi sympathizers within Ukraine? I mean, it's not it's not a, it's not a fiction. Unfortunately, unfortunately, in most Ukrainian, uh, in, in most countries of the world, uh, you know. Um, the, but there's been a kind uh, of resurgence of, of nationalism, and some of these kind of more. Um, sort of self-governing military units are sort of neo-Nazi inspired. It's not a pretext. It shouldn't be a legitimate reason to invade a country. But on the other hand, we shouldn't totally pretend that's not true. Is that is that fair? Well, there there is a far right in Ukraine. It uh, united uh, uh, before the last parliamentary elections in a united front, uh, which is actually quite extraordinary for the far right if you've studied it a little. A little bit, they usually are not inclined to cooperate. But in view of the Russian threat, they united and they got 2.15% in the elections. They have now one female deputy in the um, Russian parliament and the presidential candidate of the United Forum. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I got 1.6%. And that is actually below or far below of the results that far-right parties, sometimes singular far-right parties, receive in many other European countries. So you reject the idea that there's a, a neo-Nazi problem in Ukraine, at least any more than there are in many other European countries? Yes, yeah. Let's turn, if we could, to the Western response to this, because this has been extraordinary in the past few days, hasn't it? And you're, you're German, you're working at a Swedish think tank, those two countries, having been neutral or steering clear of any kind of military engagement since the Second World War, I mean, we're talking an 80-year pause in militarization, have both now actively engaged in this, and both countries have sent anti-tank missiles and other munitions to Ukraine. Tell us about the historical significance of that. Comparing the two countries, actually, I think that the um, change, of course, is more significant in in Germany. Although Germany is a full member of NATO um, for for many decades already, had a very different strategic culture um, and was seeing itself as a sort of uh, middle power that was sort of negotiating between the West and East and had a particular uh, relationship, uh, a close relationship with Russia. A uh, modernization partnership, a strategic partnership, uh, all sorts of connections to Russia. Energy and, buying partnership. Yes, and had also a, a sort of pacifist, economically oriented uh, foreign policy or foreign economic policy. And now, uh, since basically since um, Sunday, um, when we had the uh, debate in the German parliament, the Bundestag, and um, as a, fun, a, a very surprising to me speech by the German Chancellor, um, Olaf Scholz, we have actually a very different situation now. I also think it's a deep change and it's a lasting change because it's not only reflected in the speeches by the uh, representatives of all the ma mainstream parties, even the left party, which has been traditionally more pro-Russian, I would say, has now uh, adapted its discourse. The only sort of um, apologetic um, party uh, still remaining in the is the far-right um, alternative for Germany. 
but all the other parties have basically closed ranks. Uh, and not only that, also the population has actually changed. Uh, we, we had an astonishing um, change in the attitude of Germans towards delivery of weapons, which was, I think, still uh, a few weeks ago around 20% uh, support. And the latest um, uh, poll I've seen, over 70% of Germans uh, are now actually supporting uh, delivery of weapons. So I think that is something uh, fundamental. Even recent campaigns in, in Syria and Libya and so on, the Germans have been opposed to being involved in that. And very recently, short numbers of years ago. And now that speech by the Chancellor, he says not only will they be rearming, um, they are going to spend more than 2% of GDP on military, which is what President Trump was calling for them to do for his term. Will we now see the you know engineering prowess of Germany, their... Audis and Mercedes and Volkswagens being turned towards munitions and military hardware. Are we going to see that for the first time in 80 years? Well, that's going to be quite a feat uh, for, for Germany because our army is currently in a sad state, as you may have heard, um, uh, in spite of all the image that the public image that Germans have as good, being good engineers, we have actually a pathetic army and with the, the, that needs modernization. And hopefully this will now actually uh, be applied. Um, uh, I think that eventually the sort of rearmament of Germany is not going to play that that big a role. Uh, Germany uh, is may still be hesitant to actually use this uh, its uh, weapons uh, outside Germany. Um, but rather, what I would see here as more important is the uh, change in, in in general geopolitical outlook, and also that this change is being now executed by um, a social democratic uh, party-led uh, government and a social democrat and uh, is also a social democrat that has had uh, the sort of always the, the image of being moderate, balanced, restrained, a very unemotional, so to say, politician who has sort of in, the, in, in his unemotional way presented this um, this drastic change of uh, of German foreign policy doctrine. So we've seen sending of munitions from all sorts of European countries. We have this incredible financial package of sanctions, which is really going to press Russia to the brink, it seems, an unprecedented uh, package of sanctions. And now there's even talk of sending fighter jets to Ukraine, uh, as many as 70 by reports. And apparently they're even going to be able to use Polish airfields to take off. This is a little bit concerning, isn't it? It sounds a bit like an escalation where it's no longer Ukrainians fighting, it's European powers getting involved. Yes, but um, I think we should uh, assess this here uh, realistically. Often people uh, sort of pretend to be realistic when they uh, then warn about these de developments. Uh, but what is often, uh, what seems to be often behind that at uh, is at least if you talk about uh, the cont continental European powers uh, and publics, is uh, that there is a sort of I call that galactic view of. European geopolitics in that many people think of uh, Europe um, or imagine uh, unconsciously, I would say, Europe to consist of two planets, a good planet, the EU NATO planet and the bad, the bad Eastern planet. And uh, the problem is, however, that, of course, we are not on different planets and there is not even a geographic sort of 
um, something in between Eastern and um, and Western Europe. And so whatever happens in Ukraine has direct consequences also for, for the rest, at least of continental uh, Europe. And that therefore this uh, sort of drawing this sharp line between um, the border of NATO and uh, Ukraine, it doesn't make sense to my, um, to my, um, in my eyes. Again, I'm just saying what, what's going to happen if something bad happens uh, in one of these six active reactors in Saporizhia. You know, are, is the EU going to introduce uh, visa obligations for nuclear particles trying to enter the Schengen zone? Or, you know, what is the, what is the, you know, then the solution? We are here in a very risky situation anyway. And apparently Russia is going to increase these risks and we are not going to be going to be able to hide uh, behind the European Union and NATO uh, because this is going to affect us directly. And if we don't increase the stakes for Russia, Russia will continue. Is there not a risk of increasing the hardship on Russia so much and increasing the pressure on Putin so much that he feels backed into a corner? We know that he's isolated and maybe you know, making unusual decisions. Does that not actually increase the risk on us of a kind of escalation that we don't even want to contemplate? Is there not some wisdom in saying we need to give him an off-ramp? We need to help Putin find a way out of this without doubling down and doubling down? I don't think that one excludes the other. Uh, we should increase as much as possible the help for Ukraine including military help, perhaps not direct military help, but indirect military help. And we should at the same time uh, continue with diplomacy, um, absolutely. And we may even try to construct some sort of uh, agreement that uh, the Ukrainians would find uh, um, acceptable and uh, the Russians uh, could uh, then find acceptable and that Putin could perhaps even present as, as some sort of a victory um, uh, in, in, in Russia. I mean, what could that possibly be? The, we've seen the Ukrainian president. He's not going to accept anything short of full territorial integrity as it was before the campaign started and staying in power. And they're the two red lines for Putin. It seems quite hard to see what a, a deal could be. I could imagine something like uh, basically uh, returning to the status quo before the attack with um, uh, a sort of uh, uh, recognition of the status quo, perhaps added with some sort of uh, formulation about a future NATO membership of Ukraine that could sort of take, um, in a way, care of Russian concerns that could be presented as a victory, perhaps combined uh, with the EU membership perspective for uh, for Ukraine. So, the, so Ukraine would also get something in uh, in exchange. But for that, we need to increase pressure and the risks for for Moscow. We cannot simply hope uh, on some sort of uh, acknowledgement of uh, or some sort of turn of uh, in in Moscow. Uh, you, you need to actually uh, you need you need to put up a fight. That is the sort of street fight logic that uh, Putin is having. He's behaving like that exactly because the West and Ukraine are so weak. The most Russian city uh, outside Russia is not actually located in Ukraine. Uh, many think that is Sevastopol. The most Russian city outside Russia is on the Russian-Estonian border. 
in eastern Estonia, which is the city of Narva, which has more Russian and Russian speakers than even Sevastopol. And Narva is, is secure because Narva is protected. There's NATO, there's the EU, the stakes are very high. And that's why Narva, which is, by the way, only about 135 kilometers away from Putin's birthplace, St. Petersburg, is uh, in a good situation um, because the stakes would be very high for Russia to, to escalate there. If we increase the stakes also in Ukraine, then Russia will back down. So you've painted what might be an optimistic picture of the likelihood of some kind of deal coming out of this, and maybe there is a diplomatic solution. It would be remiss of me not to ask what the more pessimistic outlook might be. Let's say that they don't come to a deal. Let's say that the European powers keep on upping the stakes and providing more military assistance. I mean, we know that pretty much everyone in Ukraine has got a Kalashnikov if they want one. We have Russian troops gradually advancing. We have a 40-mile-long column of tanks and carriers moving in towards Kiev. What, is, what are we facing if there is no deal, do you think? tens of thousands, hundreds, even perhaps even hundreds of, of thousands of dead people. And again, this is not just about, you know, being very sad for Ukraine. I keep mentioning the four nuclear power plants in Ukraine and the 15 active reactors there. This is nothing uh, where we can sort of imagine this being on another planet. This is um, on the European continent. The, uh, the cruise missiles, Russian cruise missiles, are now hitting locations that are just 90 minutes uh, flight uh, away from Berlin. So this is all very close. And we have to then, uh, I mean, what I've been uh, arguing already since 2014 is to simply stop uh, Russian uh, energy. Um, we stop paying for Russian energy deliveries and then um, uh, this would, of course, be costly for the West. Are we still paying for Russian energy deliveries today? Yes, of course. We get for gas, for oil, as far as I know, even for coal. Uh, so millions are, uh, of euros are still going to, to, uh, to Russia and financing. This is the odd thing, this war. And the war, again, which is in the immediate vicinity of the largest European nuclear power plant. This is a, such an absurd situation, in fact that um, uh, we should be actually talking about, about Ukraine in terms of the national interests, the basic security interests of EU citizens. Andreas Umland, thank you so much for sharing your analysis with us. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Andreas Umland of the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies. He is an expert on Russian and Ukrainian politics. He's lived in Kiev for over 20 years, although he was talking to us from Berlin. His analysis, I felt, was surprisingly optimistic. Uh, he seems to think a deal might yet be struck, which could look acceptable both to Vladimir Putin and to the government in Kyiv. Of course, it remains to be seen whether he's right on that, and I hope he is. In the meantime, we will be paying close attention and we'll be bringing regular updates with experts and analysts, as well as voices on the ground here at Unheard. So thank you to him. And thanks to you for tuning in. See you next time.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 